Hello, good evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome uh, to the London School of Economics. Um, this is an event, a public event on our public uh, series, where the aim is to provide a meaningful space for discussion of contemporary and controversial uh, topics. We're here today to talk about um, Occupy the Pedestal, Cultural Heritage, Protest and the Law. Um, so a very warm welcome. We're very glad you could join us this evening and a particular welcome to those who are joining us via Facebook. Um, this, the event will end quite sharply at 7.30. In a minute, I will. it's my great privilege to introduce our speakers this evening. Um, and I hope that we will have around 40 minutes for a question and answer session at the end. Uh, please use the chat box or the Q&A box to type your questions in um, and we will take them as they come. And apologies in advance if we can't uh, accommodate all the questions. If you are um, active on Twitter, please use the hashtag, hashtag LSE Heritage uh, to tweet. And if you copy at LSE Law, uh, you might get a retweet. Uh, so please uh, do that if you feel comfortable. Um, this is really about your participation as well. And with that in mind, uh, we'll have two quizzes directed towards the audience. And I will give you a prompt uh, to have a look at uh, the appropriate box so that you can take part in the quiz. And uh, at the end of the event, uh, we will just look at what the results are. Um, with that brief introduction, um, it's my privilege really to invite our very distinguished panel of external speakers. Um, and I think, I think COVID-19 has trapped us in the present and it gives me great pleasure to invite these distinguished speakers to talk really about the past and how we reconstruct in the past and the present um, our heritage. Um, our first speaker is Councillor Asha Craig who is Deputy Mayor with Responsibility for Communities, Equalities and Public Health at Bristol Council. Um, what a portfolio to carry in these times, Councillor Craig. Welcome to the LSE. Um, she has 30 years of experience as a community activist, leader, management consultant, but she's quite a late entrant to the life in politics, having won uh, Labour election, um, elections as a Labour councillor in Bristol in May 2016. Uh, Councillor Craig is also a school governor at Bristol Futures Academy and a proud mother of uh, three daughters. Jonathan Jones, who will go next, is a British art critic who's written for The Guardian since 1999. He's appeared in the BBC television series Private Life of a Masterpiece, and in 2009 was judged for the Turner Prize. He's also been a judge for the BP Portrait Award. Welcome, Jonathan. Uh, Sarah Keenan is reader-in-law at Birkbeck and co-founder of the Center for Research on Race and Law. She worked as an associate for Justice Margaret Wilson of the Supreme Court of Queensland and as a solicitor at Prisoners Legal Service before coming to academia. Uh, and I know, Sarah, you're very much in demand to talk about some of the issues I hope we'll raise this evening. So thank you for making time for this, um, this event here at the LSC. Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my colleagues, Dr. Tatiana Flesses. Dr. Flesses has been quite a vocal contributor to the debate on returning the Parthenon marbles. 
And here at the LSC, she teaches and researches on cultural property and heritage law, law and social theory, and law and literature. And finally, our final speaker will be uh, Dr. Luke McDonough. Luke has recently joined um, what is now becoming quite a, quite a large and thriving community of IP and cultural property scholars at the LSE Department of Law. And he joins us from City University of London where he was senior lecturer. Uh, Luke teaches uh, intellectual property and researches on intellectual property law. And watch out uh, for his book in 2021 on performing copyright law, theater, and authorship. Um, thank you all very much uh, for joining us this evening. Um, each of the external speakers will have 10 minutes, followed by five minutes each from Tatiana and Luke. Councillor Craig, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be with you today. So Bristol is now and has been for decades at the centre of debate around inequality generally and racial inequality specifically. It stands as a microcosm of the issues of global inequality and the toxic legacies of colonialism and empire, whether that be the buildings and public statues that came into being out of the economy of empire, the language of propaganda and demonization of the exotic enemy, the continued control of Africa's resources and the fact that many of today's conflicts in the world are the result of the arbitrary borders created by European empires. Socio-economic inequality is evident in many parts of the city, which sit alongside areas of privilege and wealth. Documented dif differences in opportunity and outcome extend to education, employment and health, resulting in lower living standards, life expectancy and aspiration. Bristol has a history of racial justice activism, responding to injustice as they present at the time. There has been the Bristol boycott of 1963, the St. Paul's uprisings of 1980, leading to the campaign to establish the Malcolm X Centre in 1985. Often forgotten is the success of the community-based Operation 2007 campaign and its challenge of the abolitionist self-gratifying narrative on the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act in 1807. That was felt to marginalize the voices of African heritage community who were the living legacy of that period. Currently, the unequal impacts of COVID-19 on black and brown communities of the global south to the Windrush scandal, to the global protests about climate and racial injustice, the events of the past months have highlighted the issues of racial inequality in society. The murder of George Floyd in the USA reignited a focus on racial justice with many groups mobilizing under and outside the banner of the Black Lives Matter movement in Bristol. With one of the most public demonstrations of a discontented community, the pulling down of the statue of Edward Colston beamed into homes around the world. The push for change in Bristol has a, has a long and well-documented history, but progress has been painfully slow. While the statue of Colston no longer gazes over Colston Avenue, the legacy of slavery is still visible throughout the city. So the toppling of the statue of Edward Colston during the Black Lives Matter protest in June 2020 was a symbolic demonstration of our city's complex relationship in, uh, with race. It highlights the long shadows cast by slavery and racism in the city. 
and how this shapes our city's discourse about inequality and exclusion. In this context, there is recognition that solving entrenched racism and inequality is a collective responsibility. No single organization or individual can tackle this problem alone. Bristol is by no means unique, but we hope that by sharing our experiences, other cities and institutions may find inspiration and practical ideas for how our political leadership can shape a city's future to racism and disparity, statues and plinths, and occupying pedestals. So Edward Colston, the controversial, uh, controversial figure at the center uh, of, of Bristol's thrust into uh, global no notoriety. A merchant and conservative MP, a slave trader who made his fortune as part of the Royal Africa Company, including two years as deputy governor from the kidnap and uh, sale of Africans. The Royal Africa Company held the monopoly in England on trading among the west coast of Africa with an estimated 84,000 men, women and children transported to the Caribbean and the rest of the Americas. Colston died in 1721 and his statue was erected in 1895, 150 years after his death. While he donated large amounts to charitable causes, the majority of Colston's wealth derived from slavery. And in the 1890s, there were rival proposals for new statues to be erected in a new park created in the center of Bristol. In 1984, William Henry Willis of the Willis Tobacco Importing Family paid for a statue of the former Bristol Whig MP, Edmund Burke. This statue was erected in 1894. In response, the printer J.W. Arrowsmith called for and likely paid for the statue of Colston to be added. It is likely that Arrowsmith paid for the statue himself as public prescription, subscription failed to cover the cost. There was no public demand to have this man depicted in the city. And this statue was erected in 1895 and gifted to the city. Simply put, the reason Bristol has a statue of Burke and Colston next to each other was because of the rivalry between merchants and manufacturers, Clifton versus Bedminster, Tories versus Liberals in the late 19th century. What I found surprising was that the Colston statue was only listed in 1977 to celebrate abolition to which seems a curious idea. So this is the real converse, conversation about who is memorialized by statues in cities. Individual power and privilege impact the way cities looked in the past and it continues to this day. What people have learned before the 7th of June was that Colston gave the city a load of money and therefore deserved a place of honor. The truth was he was very sectarian and only supported people with the same specific religious views as himself. To say nothing of the fact that the money he endowed parts of the city uh, was made trading in humans. There have been ongoing conversations in the city about the statue and whether it remained fit for purpose. Other prominent institutions in this city started to rethink their associations with the name. The statue itself became a focus of understandable public reaction to this, his past and was increasingly vandalized and damaged. The plaque in particular was controversial as it described him in glowing terms as a wise and virtuous son of the city. This was not the opinion of the city then as evidenced by the lack of appetite to pay for a statue and it certainly wasn't the opinion of the city by June of this year. 
As a result of an unofficial plaque being added, which damaged the stonework, it was proposed that a second official plaque be added to provide some factual context to better reflect his role in this city. Eventually, the project was paused as agreement couldn't be reached regarding the content. Again, power and privilege was felt. In 2019, I established the Legacy Steering Group, which brought together a range of stakeholders and voices in the space of legacy and slavery, with a view to having that conversation about how we wanted to memorialize and celebrate uh, uh, slavery and the contributions uh, that African people of African and Caribbean heritage uh, have given to this city. In 2015, the Bristol Music Trust entered into a public consultation process to rename their music venue, formerly known as the Colston Hall, which had never received any money from the estate. Delayed by COVID in September of this year, the Bristol Beacon was unveiled. The toppling of the statue took place more than two months into the UK lockdown for the COVID-19 pandemic. The virus has already was already having a disproportionate impact on black and ethnic minority communities and also the economically disadvantaged. Ahead of the Black Lives Matter protest on the 7th of June, the mayor and, uh, uh, and our administration encouraged people to take the knee at home instead to show solidarity after the appalling killing of George Floyd. But we are a city of protest and we can't stop people. The protest took place on College Green. Some 10,000 people gathered outside our main civic building at City Hall and then marched a short distance to the center of the city where the statue was erected. The mayor has spoken of the historical poetry that struck him when the statue was rolled to the quayside and dumped in the river next to Perot's Bridge, named for an, after an enslaved man who was brought to Bristol and possibly where boats that brought goods from the enslaved colony, colonies were moored in the 1800s. We can't condone violence and damage uh, and applauded the police's approach to managing the situation that day. The world's attention was focused on Bristol that week with the mayor doing over 1800 interviews alone. The office was in, inundated and continues to be inundated with thousands of emails, hundreds of letters, some unfortunately racist. These ranged from messages support, when are you going to put the statue back up, some expressing agreement but wished it had happened in a more orderly way and some very angry and demanding a return of the statue. The statue, statue is never going to be returned to its plinth. It was retrieved from the water three days later and stored safely in the museum stalls for conservation. The following weekend there was a protest at the Cenotaph which is yards from the Colston plinth. This was not violent, unlike the Cenotaph protest in London, and no statues or pieces of sculpture were boarded up, and maybe not entirely far right, as some would describe it. The statue, if people want to know, will be displayed alongside Black Lives Matter placards from the protest, so the 300-year story of slavery through to today's fight for racial equality can be shared and taught. A month later, a new statue was placed on the plinth. This was erected early one morning without permission by a London-based artist and was removed by Bristol City Council within 24 hours. While much was made of the fact that Jen Reed was a local woman who had stood proudly on the plinth the day the statue was pulled down, the artist was a white man from London who used his own privilege to essentially arrange the whole thing and all while being shadowed by hand-picked media and TV. 
What became apparent during the days and the weeks after this statue toppling is that we have a different idea of what should adorn our public realm. The only way we can work together on our future is by learning the truth of our beginnings, embracing the facts and sharing those stories with others. Bristol's true history will be researched by our new commission so the city can better understand its story. The commission officially launched last month and includes historians and city placemakers and they will be charged with researching and sharing Bristol's rich and varied areas and stories. So what are statues? I think statues are, are, are dead. There are other ways in which we can uh, memorialize um, uh, uh, great people, uh, particularly those from our own communities. And the one thing that we will uh, have made fundamentally clear is that uh, when we do make a decision about memorialization and slavery and how we uh, honor those uh, who are celebrated from African and Caribbean communities, uh, that discussion will be held by both the black communities who will be at the center, the heart of that discussion and also the wider city. I, I, will, leave it, I will leave it there. I've got a lot more to say, but I'm sure I can respond to some questions. Um, sure we'll have a chance to come back to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Hello. Yeah, we can hear you. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, well, um, really taking up the issue of statues, um, and I mean, first of all, when when I sort of saw this in the newspaper the next morning saw these images of the statue being thrown into the river. Um, extraordinary scene, like something, you know, from Eastern Europe when the, the places I've seen that, I've seen that happen in, you know, in, in, in revolutions and wars around the world. It's something, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful symbolic act. Um, you don't expect to see it in this country. And I'm, I'm someone who loves, um, you know, I love history. I love heritage. I, you know, <laughs> I'd generally be the last person to support destroying a his any kind of historical monument. But I didn't, I thought it was an exciting and meaningful and, and powerful artistic act. It was almost like a, what they did, the, the most artistically interesting thing ever <laughs> to be associated with this statue was the, was the toppling of it. Um, it wasn't a work, it, I don't think it was a, an important work of art. I don't think it had any artistic merit. Um, as is typical, I mean, you know, I mean, to be facetious about it, I'd be happy to see most of the statues in Britain, to in Britain's, Britain's cities toppled, regardless of what they portray. And, you know, because most of them are really boring, um, second rate kind of Victorian uh, works that that are not, you know, it, it's, it's, it's nonsense to take the sort of um, appalled and angry uh, right-wing culture war rage about this. Oh, how awful. What will, what, how will Bristol live without its statue of Colston? I mean, you know, this is, it, it, it's silly. Um, having said that, where do you go from there? And um, I'm glad to hear that I don't think Bristol does, probably doesn't want to put up another statue to replace it, because I think that that would be a mistake. I think... Um, the whole, I mean, I mean, I'm as an art critic, I'm, I've watched the sort of the growing sort of the politicization of statues, you know, in recent years with a sort of um, mystification. 
add really and 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 sort of slight dismay because when i uh to, when i i mean to quote the great art critic robert hughes when i was a baby art critic um in the 1990s everything was about you know modern art and bringing modern art to britain and british art becoming conceptual art and you know damien hurst and rachel whitrig i mean the most controversial sculpture in the 1990s in britain was rachel whitrig's house a, a concrete cast of the inside of a terraced house that left this ghostly um specter of a place that people had lived for you know very long time there were lives kind of preserved as, as ghosts within this sculpture and it was demolished it was very controversial the the council the in in bow in east london demolished it even though she won the turner prize for it it was probably the most powerful british artwork um of the 90s and you know it's it's now only a, a memory um but that was what we what people were arguing about back then they were arguing about art and the artistic you know uh, you know that that's that 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 and now we argue about statues um and they've become i i think i think there's a very there are only so many things that a statue can say of course a great statue is a great work of art um you know to say that statues are a dead art form does not mean they've never been a living art form um if there was a michael the trouble is you know, if, you, if there was a Michelangelo out there making statues, um, that would be, you know, that would be great. Or a Rodin. Um, but there isn't. The, like, I think the last person who created public statues that were great works of art was Rodin, um, which is, you know, a century ago, more than a century ago. Um, and Rodin's Burgers of Calais, uh, you know, outside Parliament in London is, you know, one of the great, that's a great public sculpture with real empathy um but even you know my i mean michael but but then statues statues in public space even if it's by the greatest artist in the world a, a statue in public space can also just be a symbol that makes people proud or angry and, and and creates these rather sort of simplistic emotions um what happened michelangelo himself made was commissioned to make a statue of the pope pope julius ii pope julius ii was the a warrior pope who he well he didn't just pray in the Vatican he led his armies into battle he conquered Bologna um you know the head of his own armies and then he had a colossal statue of himself put up outside Bologna Cathedral by Michelangelo in bronze when the people of Bologna then rose up and threw out Julius II they tore down that statue and destroyed it and melted it and made a cannon out of it which I mean, so they didn't care. They didn't care for one second. It was by Michelangelo, you know. It was so. So even even the greatest artists in history, actually, who made statues, kind of get caught up in this politics of statues, which is very um, it's very primal. Perhaps I don't know. Putting up a you know, it seems that as soon as whenever you put up a statue, you create the possibility of the statue being toppled down. There's a there's a play between the 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 power of the statue and and its you know its it, 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 its dominance of a public space and the fact that it may then be attacked um, which is why I do not think that this that the result of all this should be putting up lots of sort of statues you know as it were taking down all the bad statues around Britain and and putting up good statues in their place um, 
you know, which has happened. There was a stat, you know, people say we must have a statue of a suffragette. Um, that would not be the way. And, 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 but more than that, I think this is, this is about slavery. And I think that Britain really fails. It, we really do fail to, to remember slavery and to acknowledge our guilt and, and to think about it. We, we, we're very good at not thinking about it. We're very good at, you know, we're, we're a nation obsessed with heritage, obsessed with historical memory, but it's a very his selective historical memory, obviously. And, you know, the, the, a few years ago, the First World War was turned into the, we, we have the Second World War as this great national memory of heroism, um, which I don't, you know, I'm happy with that. But, but to the First World War then had to be made into a great, National Memory of Hemorrhism as well. And there were the poppy, you know, the, the, the poppies outside the Tower of London and, you know, huge numbers of people going and being, you know, to see these and that, that kind of, that kind of, but we don't, but we, we don't have a, an adequate memorial or, or an adequate memory, a historical, we don't, we really, we really managed to obliterate slavery from history. Or, I mean, and, I, and I've been fascinated by the way that that's been discussed since, uh, you know, since this incredible event in Bristol, what we've, it's become, you know, and, and, and you see, as I say, I'm someone who like, I cares a lot about, I, I love history. I love his, I don't want to sort of, um, yeah, I don't want to destroy the past. And, and I don't like the idea of, there's something, there's a problem with effacing the past. I think we need to make the history of slavery more visible, not less visible. Um, I think the point about Colston statue was that, not many people probably knew what it was about. It only became interesting and significant at that moment when it suddenly became infamous. Um, but but the last thing we need to do is, is to sort of, you know, remove every trace of slavery from 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 public space in Britain. That it needs to be more visible. So what we what what I think we need, therefore, is imaginative and powerful. Um, modern art which approaches this in the in the in the spirit it deserves which is you know that this was um well i'm going to say this was if you like this was britain's holocaust this was this this there are differences uh, they're not the same but 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 this was a historical crime in, in which britain had a, played a large part um britain did not invent the atlantic slave trade but it it became very dominant in it in the 18th century and it, at, at a time when, you know, we, we, we gained a lot from it. We made a lot of money from it. Um, it is at a crucial point when the British Empire, not only the British Empire, but British industry was taking off the commercial revolution. You know, Britain was becoming the first industrial capitalist nation by the end of the 18th century. And at the same time, slavery, the slave trade was, was a, a major source of income this is something that we need to, is something that we should you know address properly so when it comes to works of art and public art i think what we need is to, is, is is it powerful imaginative and ambitious modern works of art which are not statues at all but which are in the tradition of the great sort of um, memorials that have been created such as the Vietnam, the, the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, I think was the first, that was the first time, was a new kind of memorial, 
created by Maya Lin. Um, an incredibly moving and, and popular work of art. I mean, I, I've been there. I've stood in the in, in I've stood there in the dark in in the evening, listening to tears to grown men crying because that's what they do. They go there and they cry for their for their fallen comrades. It, 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 it's you know it's a, it's just this long black wall with names on it. It's 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 a minimalist monument and that same kind of aesthetic has been also used to create powerful Holocaust memorials. Um, it wouldn't be, you know, we know it wouldn't be an adequate way of remembering the Holocaust to have a, a statue of, a, you know, a statue of a Holocaust victim. It would, it would be bizarre. Um, but, but what people do is there's Peter Eisenman's uh, Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin, which is a huge field of kind of concrete cenotaphs. Um, Daniel Lieberskin's Jewish Museum in the same city, which also has a kind of absent spaces in it, which are memorials. Um, and Rachel Whitereed, after creating House, um, she created um, the Holocaust Memorial in Vienna, which is a kind of a, a cast of an inverted library. Those kinds of things are about, you know, uh, subtle and poetic ways of, of, of dealing with historical memory. And, 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 and that's what this is about. We need, we need a, an art which can truly make it make us aware of what of those lives that were lost and of the suffer of the scale of suffering we're talking about. Um, and I'm going on a bit long. One, just one other point: Daniel Lieberskin's Jewish Museum in Berlin is both a museum and a memorial. Um, the historian William Dalrymple has suggested that there should what we need is a, a museum of colonialism um, and and of slavery, and that these statues, you know, take tear down all the statues, all the statues. He's, he he knows more, but he knows more about the criminality of of the British in India than you know than most people do. And so, I mean, he's I mean, and you know, he's saying that take down these statues and put them in a museum and and have a museum. And I think I think that that might be the the, the most fantastic thing. And maybe it should be in Bristol would be a, a great place to have it. Um, but to have something you know at, at the one and the same time a, a a a proper ambitious poetic memorial but also a museum which allows people to reflect further and to explore the history further because this is and and, and this is about making that history visible not making it invisible so that's anyway thank you that's great jonathan thank you very much um powerful words there both from um councillor craig and jonathan jones um i'll just take a moment to remind you um, uh, Matt, if we can have access to the quiz, um, there is a little quiz on whether it was right for protesters to pull down the statue at Bristol, uh, do vote, and we'll make uh, the results available towards the end. With that, uh, Sarah, I'm very happy to pass on the mic to you. Um, tell us your thoughts. Uh, thanks, Shiva, um, and thanks very much to Luke and Tatiana for uh, inviting me onto, onto this esteemed panel. Um, so I've written something short, which I will read. Um, so on Sunday, May the 24th this year, which was two weeks, exactly two weeks actually, before the Colston statue was pulled down, mining company Rio Tinto detonated a series of explosions to make way for the expansion of one of, one of its iron ore mines in Western Australia. In the process, it did it destroyed the Dukin Gorge Caves, which were the oldest human shelters in Australia and possibly the world, containing evidence of continual human habitation going back 46,000 years. 
And to put that in perspective, um, the caves were about 10 times the age of Stonehenge. The caves were a sacred site of the Purukunti Kuruma and Pinakura people who are the traditional owners of this area. The cave had harbored thousands of artifacts, including ancient tools, furniture, and garments. Being a sacred site, it also harbored narratives and histories and was part of an Aboriginal metaphysics, which links the human and non-human world and generations past, present, and future. Traditional owners have expressed their immeasurable cultural and spiritual loss and profound grief at the destruction. So I raised the Jukan Gorge cave destruction on this panel for a number of reasons. The first is that it's important in conversations about shared physical space and culture that we do not only speak about the cultural objects produced by white people, and in particular, the cultural objects produced to glorify a triumphalist idea of the British Empire. When black lives are being fought for, black culture might seem like a luxury activists cannot afford, but life and culture are, of course, inseparable. The wanton destruction of contemporary Aboriginal sites of immense cultural significance is evidence of the active continuation of the racist mindset and political economy, which those rightly insisting slave traders should not be put on pedestals are opposing. Law plays an important part in that mindset and political economy. And although the Jukun Gorge cave destruction occurred in Australia, the laws that facilitated the destruction have firmly British roots. So the land that these caves stood on was annexed by British colonial forces in 1827. For the next 40 years, Western Australia was a crown colony ruled by a governor primarily responsible to the British government. While the annexation of Western Australia brought it under the possession of the crown, the status of land titles in the colony was very uncertain uh, with members of the British landed classes occupying large areas of land there as squatters. And that meant that squatted land was protected, uh, not, not by law, but by individual acts of violence by the squatters who regularly set physical traps for Aboriginal people attempting to return to their land. And it was not uncommon for them to kill those who were caught. Um, indeed, Aboriginal men, women and children were kidnapped and enslaved by British pastoralists and perlers in Western Australia for decades after the 1833 Slavery Abolition Act. The Western Australia government gave Rio Tinto its present lease over this land in 1965. The terms of Rio Tinto's lease require it, of course, to comply with the law, including relevant laws around cultural heritage protection and, since 1993, native title. All of these laws were complied with in the process of destroying the Jukan Gorge caves. Rio Tinto informed the Pudukunti Kuruma and Pinakura representatives of its intention to expand the mine, and their native title rights did not give them a veto over such action. Rio Tinto also applied for and was granted ministerial consent to conduct the blasts pursuant to the procedures set out under the Aboriginal Heritage Protection Act. So labelling cultural objects as heritage puts their life and significance in the past. Calls to protect heritage are based on preserving that past so that it can be remembered and usually celebrated in the present, but as part of history. But British imperialism is not only in the past. 
The slave trade has ended. Colonial expansion does not take place in the way that it did prior to the 19th century and formal equality exists now in law and yet British imperialism continues. It continues in the destruction of Aboriginal sacred sites for the economic maintenance of a former colony where British sovereignty over land continues to rest precariously on the violent occupation begun 200 years ago. It continues in the British Museum's continued possession of cultural objects seized as the spoils of conquest and still displayed here in the empire's heart. It continues in the art galleries, museums and universities built with money paid as compensation to slave owners for their loss of property upon abolition and many of those institutions receiving ongoing funding today from extractive private companies whose profits are pulled from the continued destruction of formerly colonised land. It continues through British immigration law, which prevents the descendants of those whose stolen labour enabled the British welfare state to exist from moving here safely in search of a better life. And it continues with the public valorisation of slave traders put on pedestals in the public spaces of this rich island. And this is why when I saw those young people pulling down the statue of Colston, I didn't see them engaged in a debate over heritage but rather in a fight against British imperialism in the present, not just in Bristol, but in a world defined by colonial inequalities. As it fell, they revealed the statue to be the heavy block of moulded copper and tin that it is. Its toppling occurred with relative ease, swiftly sinking under its own weight into the river. By comparison, to destroy the Jukun Gorge caves, Rio Tinto had to use industrial machinery to drill 382 holes into the ground, fill them with liquid explosives and electronic detonators suspended on wire, and then fire the shot. So perhaps the apparent fragility of British heritage can teach us something about its place in this planet's past and present and help us in bringing other apparently more resilient cultural histories to light. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. That that was um, very helpful. Um, Tatiana and Luke, over to both of you. Um, uh, if if you can also respond in part to some of what our speakers have said, that would be great. Tatiana, would you like to go first? Absolutely. Um, this has been one of the most interesting panels I've ever sat on and I'd like to start by weaving together some of the threads that I've heard. So, um, and I'd like to do that in the context of talking about what heritage means and what we think it means. So like Jonathan said, the toppling of statues is no, no new thing. It happens with every regime change. Uh, but what's interesting now today is that the people who are doing the toppling are not the government. They're the people who have up to now been in the shadow of these statues. And so it becomes heritage thinking as a form of civic action. And um, I've written something very brief about this that you can find on my on my website, but I think in order to think through some of the wonderful points that um, 
Commissioner and Sarah also, um, I'd like to start by asking, well, what is heritage? Um, it says heritage is something between history and heritage. Heritage is a commodification of history. It's a way of um, thinking about the past in which some people or some countries or some narratives can make money from it, can represent that which is familiar to people who have already been told a story about history and what the history is. So um, I think the best form of heritage talk or heritage and law to think about in light of this is the category of dissonant heritage, which is a category in which we have competing historical and post-colonial narratives of which the debates around the politics of, of um, dismantling certain kinds of public, public spaces exist. And um, when we think about dissonant heritage, okay, two things happen, all right? Um, one thing is that we have what Hannah Arendt calls in her book, um, Eichmann in Jerusalem, the shift from victims to witnesses. So when a site that has up to now been seen as a place of great glory for a country becomes a site of some kind of, of shame or atrocity, what you're really seeing there, at least presumably, is that the people who have been ignored in the narrative of, you know, um, let's say the narrative of validation starts speaking. And through that speak and through these actions, they become witnesses instead of victims. And that process is one of civic action and civic engagement. And I think as Sarah Keenan said, and as um, Commissioner Craig said, that is to be celebrated. I think what we have a lot in heritage is the top-down understanding of elites, uh, creating a particular understanding of history. And yet what we all know is that a heritage site is also a money-making adventure. Um, I'd like to conclude by saying that, of course, where this really counts is in the present. And the reason it counts in the present is because it's an extremely common re reaction to dark or to dissonant heritage to feel shame. So when that shame is felt, especially on the national level, um, what happens is erasure. So for example, if we look at sites of dark heritage or heritage of atrocity, like uh, work camps or death camps in World War II, many of them were simply erased. Um, if we look, though, in the present at a place, I mean, we live in a time of one of the greatest diasporas of people in the world right now. We have places like the Mira um, camp on Lesbos and the Calais jungle in Paris that are being erased because of our shame and our fear. And I think that what we learn from the activism around statues is that 
we can't afford to act on shame. We have to think about heritage as a discourse that preserves in order to give a place for people to act from perhaps in the future. So um, that's my contribution. And I think that every person speaking so far has given us a piece of that inversion, of that inversion from past to future and that inversion of uh, the category from an elite triumphalist discourse to one where the people that have been triumphed over um, take their own take their own spaces back. So thank you very much. Great, thank you, Tatiana. Um, I I quite I mean there will be questions on this, of course, but the gap that's developing between the government and people. Uh, and this being a sort of totemic symbol of civic action, I think is quite powerful. And that's uh, my cue uh, to direct the audience to our second quiz um, on who should make the decision on what is memorialized. So if you could all please vote on that, um, I'm sure we could use some of the results um, in there to keep the conversation going. Um, Luke, um, it falls on you as a final speaker to tie some thoughts together and tell us what you think. Thank you, Shiva. And thank you to all of uh, the speakers. Uh, I've really enjoyed listening to you all and I look forward to the questions. I think the recurring theme, or at least one of the recurring themes is what counts as heritage and who gets to decide? You know, we live in a time of a lost in universal values and universal claims of heritage as seen in the international conventions um, embodied by UNESCO. The meaning of universality is contested as never before. My question, I suppose, for the evening to add to what has been said about Bristol, about Rome, about Rio Tinto and, and the Jukun Gorge, is how do we treat contested spaces? And I'm going to focus very briefly on Turkey's recent decision to convert, convert the Hagia Sophia or the Hagia Sophia to, from a museum into a shared museum and mosque. This was a decision that UNESCO criticized in July as a potential violation of uh, Turkey's legal commitments under the UNESCO conventions as Hagia Sophia is a world heritage site. Yet the use of it for Friday prayers transforms this space from being a museum into a sacred space of lived Islamic heritage while also operating as a museum. At the same time, it can be seen in its political context as a propaganda victory for President Erdogan. It's also worth thinking about the fact that in many ways, the Hagia Sophia is the inverse of Cordoba's Mezquita, which was built as a mosque and then converted into a church and now operates as a church and a museum where Muslims are not allowed to pray. And so there are sites of extreme and remarkable complexity around the world. And 
we need to find a new way to consider these sites. Um, can we think of a new type of universalism if, we're, if we've lost faith in the one that we are currently uh, using? And as Jonathan said, how can we reimagine the idea of memorials and lived heritage? To return very uh, finally in, in my concluding point to this idea of occupying the pedestal, there is now on Fridays in the Hagia Sophia, the uh, living embodiment of, of, a, of a pedestal, which is of course the pulpit that the Imam will stand upon to lead the prayers. And it isn't enough, I think, for those of us who do believe in that there can be a universal heritage to condemn the use of such spaces for religious purposes, when that, of course, means a lot to the people who are inhabiting them. And so that's my, uh, my main kind of concluding question. And I hand back now to Deshiva. Wow. Um, thank you, Luke. Uh, so just quite a lot of um, very interesting issues uh, to speak about. Um, but I'm very conscious that, you know, when we, on the one hand, when we're talking about um, uh, statues and monuments um, and dead art, we are also very much talking about uh, the lived lives of everybody. And the past is very much woven into our lives. Um, I have a very interesting question here. I'm inclined to take this first because this kicks us off um, in a robust way. Um, this is from an LSE alumnus from Egypt. Um, when we think about remembering people in history, where do we draw the line between a historical figure being a child of that time and being someone that we should find problematic today? I imagine a vast majority of people alive in the past were racist, sexist, homophobic, etc. Are any of them worthy of remembrance? And if so, where do we draw the distinction? Sarah, could I toss that question over to you and then invite Jonathan and Councillor Craig to come in? I suppose so. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess it depends on a number of things. One of them being, um, well, I, history is not just about individuals. Uh, and I think that it's 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 primarily not about individuals. So I think that um, the way that we tell history and the way that we inform ourselves about the past uh, doesn't doesn't need to sort of adopt the kind of um, liberal framework of the individual that um, I think the the questioner is sort of understandably using to assess the credentials of you know, historical figures. Um, so I guess that would be the first point I would make. And uh, the second is that, I mean, indiv individuals, of course, do have their role in history and um, they're, they're remembered uh, primarily for what they do in association with, with others. Um, and so they, they can also be remembered in, in lots of different and complex ways um and i think that that's um i think that's the most important uh aspect uh maybe is to um 
to try and take the focus away from the individual and and look at at uh, at actions and uh, movements that occurred collectively, and we can understand the kind of social power regimes that existed at the time, and we can um, we can also put them in in perspective as what as to what we feel now. Great. Um, thank you, Sarah. I'm 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 also kind of minded by what um, Jonathan said that um, Britain hasn't really come to terms with its history of slavery. And this is Britain's Holocaust. And we haven't had the kind of conversations we need to have about collective histories. Uh, you know, perhaps, you know, we, we've got a long way to go in having those meaningful conversations. Um, Councillor Craig, would you like to respond to this question? Uh, yes, I, uh, uh, yes, I would. Uh, and I think one of the things I want to do is I, I really need to kind of counter any claims that somehow Bristol, uh, we, uh, in Bristol and indeed across the country, people are somehow erasing our history by uh, removing or, or, or renaming um, uh, statues. You know, some people argue that statues are important uh, methods for teaching history, but I can't remember a time, uh, I can tell you there are a number of people who have said they knew nothing about Colston's uh, true history until after uh, after the afternoon of uh, 7th of June. I think um, we're not trying to remove or hide history, but rather for us, it's about, we need to provide a space uh, uh, to kind of contextualize uh, the different stories. Some people are always arguing that if statues are removed, we're somehow undermining the national story and attacking our sense of identity and national pride. Well, whose identity and national pride? I have an identity and national pride that I don't necessarily recognize in the statues that are on display. I, I think people need to understand, you know, it's the 21st century. Um, uh, you, you spoke about, um, the, uh, the the memorial in, in Berlin. You know, myself and, and the mayor and, and other colleagues were interested in reconciliation and truth. Uh, and uh, we know that for some people, the events of the 7th of June are very uh, threatening, um, but, um, you know, we have to come together and um, make a decision about what that reconciliation and that memorialization will look like, bearing in mind the competing um, views um, of um, the citizens in um, in our city. Thank you, um, Jonathan. I'm going to uh, give you give you the same question, but I want to just turn it around a little bit and ask you, in the context of your comments, um, when is a statue simply bad art, and when does it become heritage? Um, well, I mean, um, well, is there a contradiction? I don't know. I mean. Um, <laughs> As I say, a lot, a lot of statues are quite sort of, they're not even bad art, they're just not really art. Um, the kind of statues that, you know, that, that got put up in the sort of late Victorian age and, and, and they get it put, and that we put up today. I mean, you know, I'm really sorry, but, you know, statues of footballers and statues, they're, they're all a bit sort of um, kind of um, vacuous. I mean, they don't, I mean, so, um, can I, I, I want to go. I, th I thought it was a really good question, though. Yeah, <laughs> I, do want... I, I didn't mean but... to knock you off track. Um, because um, I think, yeah, I actually very strongly think we do need to respect the difference of the past. It's absolutely um, wrong to approach history 
like a censor, like morally judging every person according to our own standards right now, which have actually changed, which are changing rapidly, you know, almost month by month. There's a lot of, there are a lot of changes in values going on and disputes about values. We can't, I mean, it's fundamental to history that you have to try and place people in their world and, and their time. And and I thought the question was actually brilliant because yes, of course, if you by our by the standards, you know, by 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 the standards upheld now, you probably find everybody in the past was a racist, everybody, and you know, but but it's not. You have so you do you really do have to to look at them by their own lights. The thing, the interesting thing about slavery is that it was contested in its time. There was a, there was an abolition campaign. Um, of course, those abolitionists were not just it's wrong to say that abolition was all the work of, uh, you know, um, well-meaning white Britons, and then to and and and, and then to the, for that to turn that into a complacent memory. However, it did happen, and there were campaigners, and there were people like uh, Josiah Wedgwood, and there was, you know, abolitionists published the. I mean, the the, the image that we know, um, that everybody knows, and it's the most powerful image of 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 the slave trade is the diagram of the Brooks, a slave ship, a Liverpool slave ship. And that was showing how, you know, the monstrous way in which, it, also the horribly, and this is for me a comparison with the Holocaust because they're both perversions of, of sort of science. Um, the, the horribly scientific way in which they've, you know, maximized the number of human commodities that they can fit onto a deck. But this was published by abolitionists in the 18th century. It was one of the big, iconic protest artworks of that time so so the the thing about the about slavery in the 18th century was that it was against it was a contradiction of the moral values that people were upholding which eventually did break and 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 and, and, and abolition came about um but you know that then that thing there was that you know the thing about rural britannia the lyrics of rural britannia well it, it's not mocking slavery it was actually what they thought you know, people, the, the, the ideals at the time, Britain did see itself as a country of liberty and so forth, whereas, in fact, at the same time, it had a slave trade there. So anyway, that's that's <laughs> so. So I think I think we need to. I come back to what I said originally, I, we need to make history more visible, not less. And I think what this what the. The, the legacy of the Colston debate must not be to sort of efface all these, get rid of all the statues, get rid of, as, if it were, as if it was kind of offensive, as if it was a sort of, um, you know, we want to, because then that's just sweeping under the carpet even more, whereas in fact we need to, we need to really know this stuff and explore this stuff. And um, I wish there was more. I haven't seen enough of that really, to be honest. It's all become like this rather small debate about um, cultural wars. Can I, can I just quickly come in here? Because I think what people need to understand is that Obviously, uh, uh, following the, the toppling of, of the statue, it's quite clear uh, uh, our citizens in Bristol have a very, very uh, different idea of what should it, it adorn uh, our public realm. And the only way that we're going to be able to work together on our future is by learning the truth of all of our beginnings, embrace the facts, share those stories uh, with each other. And that's why the mayor stood up uh, the History Commission, who can help us research uh, Bristol's history. Uh, and it's not just the, uh, and it's all of Bristol's history, you know, it impacts wars, protests, slavery, freedom uh, of had on the city, that the uh, Bristol's heritage, 
it um, encompasses the harbour, the docks, manufacturing, research. Uh, I think, you know, the burning platform has been race. It's, it's race inequality. You know, it's the events uh, from COVID uh, and uh, George Floyd and everything. It's just been like a perfect storm. Uh, you know, but we recognize, you know, that we may be starting uh, with, with the history of slavery and telling the full story, not the half story, because that is what we were taught. I, you know, I, I, I can tell you now as a child growing up in, in my city, uh, I, I had no knowledge of anything positive when it came to black, even when it was on TV. So, you know something? And our children are now demanding, young people are demanding, they want to know the full history uh, and we owe it to them. Thank you. Um, Councillor Craig, maybe I can ask you and Tatiana a question about this, um, uh, the, this, the missive put out from the direct um, Department of Culture and Media mm. about who makes decisions about statues. Uh, and the government wants to be the sole deciding authority on whether statues can be taken down or not. Um, perhaps we'll get Tatiana to comment on that. And then I'd like to come to you, Councillor Craig, because this point about civic action and what who decides what goes in the public realm, I think is uppermost in many of our minds. Tatiana first, maybe. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, I'd like to kind of try and, and weave together the previous question with this one and just say that there is a distinction between heritage and history. There really is. Um, history is what really happened, and we should all know that. And heritage is what we choose to memorialize. And I think there, the most important thing in that is who's making the decisions, you know, because the people who are making the decisions really generate that memorial space and really include or exclude other stories, other histories, other narratives from there. And that is a space of real, um, not just educational value and social value, but also commercial value and personal value. So I think the, um, the culture secretary's attempt to kind of throw a blanket over all of these sort of you know, grassroots, for lack of a better word, movements is really misguided. What gives heritage its meaning is engagement and uh, trying to control things from the top down really never, never works. It just represses something that then becomes irrepressible. Um, yeah, and I think maybe in terms of what Jonathan has been saying, better heritage would be better. I mean, I've been to the Vietnam War Memorial. It's one of the most moving sites I've ever been at. And so that for all the voices that have been silenced would be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Tatiana. Councillor Craig. What yeah, you well, just following on from Tatiana, and uh, again, power and privilege, trying to suck the air out of the debate that we are having. It wasn't the government that made the decision about the Colston statue and Burke and all the others. Uh, it was uh, 
a, a group of powerful sl slavers and merchants in the city who sat in a room and decided who they who were who they were going to praise. As I said before, uh, you know, uh, they attempted to ask the city, and the city didn't want to know. <laughs> so, um, and um, on on this occasion, uh, we're 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 taking a leaf out of the book uh, of uh, out of their book in how not to do things. You know, uh, first, first and foremost, you know, we're, we're going to put in place a system by which we are going to invite, you know, uh, artists and others uh, to, to actually look at what we're going to do around the public realm. What are we going to do around that space? The, the plinth is, is just the starting point uh, for us. You know, it, it's not it wasn't the end point. It's the starting point for us to look at our history uh, in its widest sense. Uh, and the government has no say in it. OK, it will be those who have been directly impacted. And when it comes to slavery, we are put in our black communities that those from African and Caribbean heritage, Asian and, and as we kind of as, as we um, go through the phases of the work that we're going to be doing, it will be those people who were directly impacted, who are going to be at the heart of those discussions. And it will be the city, it will be the citizens of, the, of Bristol that will decide, not the government and surely definitely not the city council. We will just, we, we're, I, I'm just, I, you know, we've set up the Legacy Commission uh, to just coordinate those efforts and make it happen. I, I am, my, myself and Marvin are not going to sit on high uh, uh, and make that decision for the city. Um, it, it'll be the citizens. Thank you. Strong words there. Matt, would this be a good time for us to put up the results from the first quiz? Was it right for the protesters to remove the statue of Colston from his pedestal in yes. Bristol? 53% yes, 28% still sizable, no, and 19% say don't know. But I'm sure this 19% will have a view by the end of this session. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Um, the questions are now coming in thick and fast, and I'm going to try and consolidate a couple of them uh, and look maybe I could um, toss the, a question on sort of universality to you there's a question from a current L LLM student um, uh, at the LSE from Greece um, who says how much should we be taking into account the lived or remembered experiences of a community that is no longer living there especially in the context of the Greek population with the Hagia Sophia or that of the Putukunti Kurama and Pinikura people with the Yukon Gorg caves. Um, I would like to combine that uh, with, um, there was another question. Um, my Q&A box has frozen. So Luke, maybe you could take that question. And the, the other question, if I can paraphrase, was about this idea of universal histories and contextualizing it in local communities and what happens when there is a contradiction there? Thanks, Shiva. Uh, well, I, I will, of course, uh, pass the, the, the Duke and Gorge question uh, to Sarah, but uh, on the general question of universality and on that Hagia Sophia example, um, there's so many ways to try to approach this question because you're dealing with uh, a site that has existed for, well, well a, a building that has existed for more than a, than a uh, a thousand years, and so um, you know, if, if we take Councillor Craig's point seriously, um, that 
we need to listen to the citizens of the city. We need to listen to the people who are affected by the the decisions in coming up with how we define heritage and defining what counts. Um, you know, we, we, we have to do that. And it, it becomes much more difficult, of course, with such old sites as Hagia Sophia, as the Mesquita in Cordoba, as the Parthenon uh, in Greece, which also went through being a church and being a mosque uh, long after its, its initial purpose, um, and is now once again a kind of a museum site. And so um, it, it becomes impossible in a way to do justice to all of these communities um, and to, to kind of create a lived heritage that does justice to all of these communities. Um, it is ex extremely difficult, um, but there are ways of, of trying to do that. Um, and, you know, something that is a thousand years old, it, 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 is, it is much more difficult than what Councillor Craig has talked about, which is trying to deal with a lived city that exists now that has citizens that are up from uh, communities that still feel the hurt and the socioeconomic impact of, of, of that. Um, I mean, there are still Christian communities in uh, Istanbul. Um, there are still minority communities, um, as is the case also in, in Spain, um, as is the case, obviously, you know, all around the world. And so um, the, the, the danger, I suppose, of, of the reconversion by Erdogan of the Hagia Sophia is that it's a majoritarian decision. Um, even if it does have the positive of turning what was a museum space into something that is genuinely lived and treasured by people who see it in a kind of sacred sense. Um, but, you know, there are voices from within the, uh, uh, what remains, I suppose, of, of the former Greek community in, in Istanbul. Also people who uh, have um, heritage in the Orthodox or former Byzantine Christian world. Um, but as I said, it is very difficult to, to try to do justice to all of these um, uh, communities. Um, and so that's why, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a solution for, for that. It, 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 I'm not sure it, it, the justice can be applied in an even way, but we can um, begin by trying to talk about universality and whether we need to redefine what that is, whether the universality that we've inherited in the post-World War II period is still fit for purpose, and whether the kinds of claims that we took for granted from UNESCO 30 years ago are still valid and can still be uh, used. Um, so that's, it's a very difficult question, and that's, that's the best way that I, I right, right now can approach it. Um, but I'll hand over maybe back to you and then to Sarah to to deal with with yeah. the other. Sarah, would would you would you like to take that question and uh, perhaps I could layer it with another one which seems quite relevant. Um, um, this is from Matthew Bourne because colonialism was a way of life rather than involving specific sites of injury. Um, how might methods of remembrance differ? Okay, thanks. Um, uh, in regards to the first question, I mean, I guess, yeah, it's a really interesting question about um, both about how we as present generations relate to past generations, but also 
about relationships between communities because communities, of course, do not remain fixed over time. Uh, they they change uh, social groups and who belongs to them and and who doesn't uh, it is very much constantly evolving. Um, so yeah, uh, and I, I'm you know I, I don't have um, I don't have a, a, a good answer to that um, except that I think that it's complicated and we need to think about it. Um, I think it's so. It's been so helpful for me to um, hear Tatiana talk about heritage as the commodification of history. Uh, I hadn't thought about it like that, um, and but I find that very useful <laughs> um, because, uh, um, I mean, thinking about um, the Australian context, um, well, first of all, I mean, the Purukuntikurama and Pinakura people are still there, right? They, they don't live in the caves, of course, but they are, uh, um, they are the, they're here now. Uh, um, they, their, their civilization has evolved. Uh, they have survived colonialism. They are, today they are Australian citizens, um, and they are living in the area. Um, so the, just, but just the fact of course, that their um, their sacred sites are seen as as heritage it is al already, I think, com commodifies them historically for the Australian government's purposes and makes them very easy to destroy. Um, because uh, you know, an equivalent act, if we see if we see you know Aboriginal Australian groups generally today as not belonging in the past, but as as belonging here in the present with us and of equal value. Then the destruction of their cultural sites, a, a site like the caves, is like, um, you know, if if someone bombed the Tate galleries um, or you know, or, or Stonehenge, I guess, um, and that would be an act of of war. Um, but it's, you know, it's just this sort of everyday corporate event in Australia. I think partly because of yeah, the the way that we place Aboriginal Australia in the past, and then what we do to that history we being I guess white Australia um so uh yeah um that's uh, I don't I don't have a good answer but th thinking about about heritage as the commodification is of of history is very helpful for me because I think that um you you turn history into property and then you can take it <laughs> um is uh, uh is definitely what has occurred um so the the second question was about um, um, and whether remem remembrance for uh, things like colonialism, which was a way of life over an extended period, should be different from uh, memorializing specific sites of injury as a as an aid to uh, remembering what happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. Colonialism took so many different forms um, uh, across so many different sites. And, you know, as an Australian, um, I very much see it as an ongoing process uh, that's um, still occurring. So, of course, it has its historical basis and there was an initial violence that looked a particular way and now it looks a bit different. But... Um, you know, the historian Patrick Wolfe, who said settler uh, in, in settler col colonies, uh, invasion is not um, is not an event. It's a structure. Uh, and I think that that's right. Um, so then 
the the question of um of whether we should we do have to remember you know things that happened historically but perhaps more important in some political contexts is that we need to face the uh ongoing um forms of of dispossession and um you know other forms of oppression that that continue today thank you um tatiana if i can just pick up on what sarah said about um heritage and history uh that's quite a powerful line uh there would you support uh, the creation of a museum where these statues might be removed and placed and that's paraphrasing one of the questions from the audience or would you see that as part of this commodification process thank you for the question um i can't take credit for the distinction between heritage and history and the um the the understanding of that as commodification that uh that has that sort of a, a very endemic view now and um and there's a very funny line which is uh, one of the big sort of heritage theorists said said that um heritage is to history as disneyland is to um is to the tower of london you know there is this constant flattening out having said that what do i mean i think that museums are good you know uh statues can sorry unstable connection um statues can go in them i don't think it matters unless those statues are art i think what matters is taking responsibility for the fact that there are other voices in the public space and you know there are graveyards of lenin and stalin statues in eastern europe there are statues that are you know in museums that were out in public you know all over the world i think i think the discourse isn't about i mean i think is both uh, commissioner craig and councilor craig and jonathan have said it's not about the statues i mean i think the most important thing is to have this kind of conversation thanks thank you tatiana i i'm going to take one question but as a segue to that question matt can we have the results of the second quiz who should make the decision so who should decide what statues are publicly displayed the local community 51% uh the local government 13% experts from public minded institutions 28% the uk government which i think is this is resoundingly coming last is 9% thank you matt so i have a question here uh from uh lawrence who's lse alumnus uh from london what does the panel think about the decolonizing efforts made by cultural institutions like the national trust and i think that quiz is quite um useful it's quite helpful uh in in trying to think about how these um how elite institutions portray this effort to decolonize um and there was a lot of pushback at least you know if you're on twitter there's a little twitter bubble that goes on this and there was quite a lot of pushback on what the national trust was doing 
Um, so I would open this up to anyone in the panel. Maybe Jonathan, do you want to come in on this? Or please indicate if you'd like to take the question. Yeah. yeah. Um, hello? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, right. Um, I'd also like to sort of come back to museums yeah. and, and the museum space of Haji Sophia, which I think is related. Okay, I think museums are... I think the thing about a museum is it is um, a secularized, um, universal kind of it's a universal kind of space. Ideally, um, I, I, and I think there's a, a lot of value in that. I remember being very shocked um, in a museum in Moscow uh, a few years ago. I was looking at um, paintings by Andrei Rublev, who's a great icon painter of the Russian late middle ages you know he's a great artist there's a film about him by Tarkovsky um and I was really shocked because there was a there was a man who was he was praying in front of them <laughs> as a as a you know as I say a secularized museum art fan you know I was I was I was stunned by this that you would actually use an icon as an icon in a museum and, and of course you could say well, well yeah I'm, I'm being you know, I'm, I'm having a kind of a enlightenment prejudice over what a museum is. But I think I think museums are a very valuable kind of space and they are a different space. When we say, oh, we should put the statues in a museum, it's a natural thing to say because because we know that a museum is just a different kind of space. It's not the street. You have a choice for a start whether to go into it. Uh, but it's not, you know, you don't pass the things in the museum are not something you have to see every day as you walk to work or something. Um and and it, and it and it's a place where you expect to to learn and think about things and to encounter unexpected things um so i was sort of yeah i think i think you know one one of the reactions to to post bristol reactions from music you know the british museum and other museums have sort of talked about their collections it's a day it's a it's it, it it's a tricky that I'm not so sure whether they should they certainly shouldn't be obviously should not be sort of taking things off view or acting like their collections are shameful. Their collections are historical collections and it's their job to to contextualize those co collections. The point and the point is the National Trust thing, again, where where are they going with it? <laughs> they say we should, you know, burn down all the stately homes. I mean, um I could see why people, you know, you could see why that's, or is it just a publicity stunt? On the other hand, what's wrong with going to a, I like going to stately homes. I know that there were places of inequality and injustice, you know, with most National Trust stately homes, they have the kitchens and staff quarters preserved. Um, you know, you know, um, so what what's the what what's actually wrong with also knowing that uh, that maybe this this particular house was built on profits from slavery it could be it could be interesting is what i'm saying i suppose and this is the thing about history history versus heritage yes heritage flattens history um what's so what we want in history we want people to be looking at history rather than turning it into heritage um of course that also means looking at with it with an open mind as well and inquiring and so you can't just you can't sort of, sort of say oh we're decolonizing this and what it means if you create one historical if you create only one history means an inquiry 
It means an inquiry into the past. And so if we had a museum of the British Empire, which, you know, I think there's something to be said for that and, and of slavery and all of slavery. There is a very good museum of slavery in, in, in Liverpool. But these, you know, these places should be present, do, doing what museums do, presenting the artefacts. I don't think we could have a museum that was just a dump of old statues because it, <laughs> it would be odd. Um, and people wouldn't go, would they? Um, a graveyard of statues. That can could I say out. Sorry. A sort of a potential graveyard of statues. Yeah, I mean that would be a. I don't think that's going to work as a museum. They could be. In, however, Britain's Britain has. You know, we have all. Obviously, our collections, the British Museum, the V&A, they are full of um, the history of the British Empire. Um, and, and 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 they've got and they're overflowing with works and you know it would it would actually be quite easy to create a museum from the national collections and uh, you know which which you know to siphon off some of those things into a collection which actually a museum which actually told the history of empire which, which you don't do it the only place recently only museum recently I've seen empire being sort of like you know it's like very full on is um the national army museum where of course they have you know, whole section about uh, the Zulu wars and about, you know, all the imperial battles of the 19th century. And those things shouldn't be forgotten. They should, we should be looking at them and thinking about them much more than we do. Anyway, sorry. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm just going to bring Councillor Craig in quickly and then Tatiana. So if you could be quick, because yeah, I... Yeah, just, just very quickly, um, you know, the, the debate just keeps harping on about... Um, you know, uh, statues and, and, and what is past. I can tell you now, you know, a third of our city is made up of young people. There are people in our communities who have, were so fed up of the, uh, the conversation ongoing about Colston and nothing being done, that they got up and they did stuff for themselves. We, we've got uh, people like Lawrence who, who um, is, uh, is, has developed Cargo, uh, which is uh, an immersive art installation project that will tell 400 years of the history uh, uh, of uh, both slavery and, as I said, the, the positive contributions that Black people have made uh, here in the city. Black Southwest Network um, is um, setting to become a leading cultural heritage organization. It's uh, recently been funded uh, to look at the diversity of heritage um, here in the city, uh, and I've also been uh, running workshops with the local, with the council and our museum staff to look at decolonization. Um, so that you know, basically, as I said, we're here to tell this full story, and it has to be in service to our communities. Thank you, Tatiana. Do you want to come in quickly on that question? Yeah, I um, I really disagree with Jonathan about kind of not everything about museums, <laughs> but some of it about museums, because I, I think museums are wonderful. We should have a lot of them. And, you know, but this whole notion that there's an encyclopedic museum, which because it is holding historical collections should be in a sense left alone is absolutely wrong. Um, because that kind of encyclopedic museum is really upholding values as well as collections. And I think that, um, you know, there should be all different kinds of museums, including great historical sort of ongoing collections. But when there's a site of consistent injustice, you can do what the, um, 
what happened in America with the Smithsonian mm -hmm. and the new museum of the American Indian mm -hmm. and, um, and kind of, you know, portion some things out. You know, you don't destroy the project by, by you know, positioning it properly. That's all I have to say. Okay, come back. I'm, I'm going to actually toss a question at all of you. You have about 20 seconds to answer. What do you think would be the most, and this was the first question that came up on the chat box, and I feel I must honor that. This is a student from Newcastle. What do you think would have the most impact, a single action that we could take that would have the most impact on this conversation on history and heritage? 20 seconds each. As I said before, it's about having that conversation and having a grown-up conversation uh, with our citizens, telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Sarah, thank you. Sarah? Uh, I think the way history is taught in schools matters a lot. Great. Luke? I think it's to listen to each other and be willing for our views challenged. Jonathan? Well, create a powerful memorial to the victims of the slave trade. Tatiana. I think that um, if you think about what goes on a plinth or what goes on a pedestal, that has to be something that we, the part partially what should always go there is a little bit of our own experiences, of our own lived experiences in a certain place and time and that we should find a way to take that forward. That's, that's fantastic. I, I mean, I think I'd like to emphasize that what we leave behind is really, in, in terms of history, is what is woven into our lives. Um, and we have to leave it there. Thank you all so much for your time this evening. And thanks to the audience for joining us and some really fantastic questions. Thank you.